You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, you are so good to us. And we pray that uh, we would go on to maturity and not laying, uh, again, a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. Uh, For, Lord, um, only by your hand and only by your spirit can we grow into your likeness in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, uh, providentially, the, the passage from 1 Corinthians 3, that the bit of it that I didn't address, which is really the good stuff, where Paul talks about spiritual milk versus solid food, uh, Hebrews brings up this morning. And so this fits nicely in with what I didn't talk about in 1 Corinthians 3. So we're looking at the Christian diet this morning, Hebrews chapter 5. When's the last time we were in Hebrews? Man, okay, Hebrews chapter 5, 11 until the end of the chapter. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so, um, gosh, where were we in Hebrews? I have have looked at this. Heretofore, Paul is really, Paul, Hebrews is working really hard to encourage us to continue to press on. And then the author finally here at the tail end of chapter 5 as a little bit of a footnote really because he's talking about something completely different gets to the heart of one of the problems that the Hebrews are having. If you remember, it's a Jewish congregation of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are feeling a lot of pressure uh, from their family and from their community and even some people are forsaking the Christian faith in order to go back to Judaism and so this letter is written to encourage them. And the author of Hebrews has just been talking about Jesus as the great high priest and starts getting into stuff about him being like Melchizedek, great name for a dog. Anyone know who Melchizedek is? All right, who is he? Mrs. Wright. You don't want to say? That's okay. Right, he's a priest. Where does he show up? Right, he shows up and he's, uh, and he's from a town called Salem. And, uh, and he shows up. A, it, it, there's a whole lot going on there that I'm not going to get into for the same reason that Hebrews gets in there. And he's comparing um, Jesus to Melchizedek in the Old Testament, which there is some thought that Melchizedek really wasn't a human being at all. But nonetheless, nonetheless, it's a pretty heavy, weighty issue where he's bringing in all these things and he says, well, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. And then all of a sudden the author of Hebrews says, aha, this is what I really want to hammer home. So about this we have much to say is about Jesus being the great high priest, which he is going to continue on, but in language that is going to be more understandable to the Hebrews as well as language that is more understandable to us, especially as it relates to Jesus and the temple and Jesus and sacrifices. 
And why is he deciding to stop? Why does he decide to stop talking about it in verse 11? I have a lot to say, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. It's not that it's complicated per se. It is complicated on one level. But what the real problem is, is that it's just too hard for you. But I remember I was part of a, I don't know why I have all these choir stories popping up. I was part of a choir in the seventh grade. And the director was a guy that was on staff at the Kennedy Center. And I remember him screaming at the Sopranos about why they couldn't hit a certain note. And then I heard this guy give a talk about 15 years later. And in it, he said, I once conducted a seventh grade choir and I screamed at the Sopranos. And at the time, I just didn't realize that I could scream at them all day long. They were physically incapable of hitting the note because they were in the seventh grade. And in the same way, the author of Hebrews is saying, I could try to explain this to you, but you're going to look at me like a dog looking at a clock. It's just not going to make any sense whatsoever because you have become dull of hearing. So it's not just that, uh, that they're innocent in their inability to understand what he's saying. He's saying, no, 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 you have proactively remained at a place that has caused you to be dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... Now, in the early church, uh, I mentioned this in the 9 o'clock, and if you come to the 11 here, you'll you're here too. Um, if you rolled up into a major metropolitan area, Corinth, Rome, uh, Antioch, Jerusalem, how many churches are going to be there? One. <laughs> Right? It's not when you roll into town, it's got like Kiwanis and then all the different kinds of, you know, rotary and then you've got all the different kinds of churches or, or it says, you know, it, it might say the Jerusalem church welcomes you, but like there's one spot, there's one location. And uh, in the life of the church, you have Jewish believing congregations, you have mixed congregations, and then you have Gentile believing congregations. I mean, Jewish, you have Jewish believing, mixed, and then you have Gentile believing congregations. And the author says, by this time you ought to be teachers, is because it was such an intense time in the life of the church that a lot of stuff was going on, especially in the training of missionaries. So does anyone remember in Acts what Paul's training was? What's that? Right, he had, he'd sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the great rabbi that history uh, knows all about and celebrates. So he had received that training as a youth, but then remember he spent several years in Antioch, and then he was sent out. In a very real way, the churches were the first seminaries. They were the first institutions of theological learning. And I think that, that you could probably say that about every single church in the early church. The whole notion of church being a consumerist thing where you kind of come and you get fed and your batteries get charged enough for the week, which is really not what it's supposed to be about anyway, but nonetheless, that was completely foreign. That model was unknown in the early church. Now, there are practical reasons for that. One, very clearly, is because the gospel had to get out. Right? God was using these local congregations to raise up 
men and women to go out and to spread the gospel. So there was a practical consideration that God in his mercy was able to, uh, to work through them. Uh, but second off, uh, there was a great desire and hunger for God's word. But the real theological learning and the real laboratory for sending people out into the Mediterranean world was in the Jewish congregations. Why? They're already in the Word. Right? They already had a working understanding of the Old Testament, right? If you're a Gentile believer and you've just come from, you know, the Temple of Apollo or something like that, what are you bringing to the table knowledge-wise? Well, I may go walk out there and make... Forrest, turn your mic off. Thank you. Um, yeah, you're not bringing anything to the table knowledge-wise, but if you're a, a Jewish believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a working understanding of the Old Testament. And in order to understand the New Testament, you have to understand the Old. And in order to understand the Old, you really have to understand the New. And that's all through Hebrews. A lot of Old Testament references that even we are going to scratch our heads at. Why? I, I, because most of our biblical knowledge is pretty, pretty nil. And so what he's saying is that what's sad about y'all is that your congregation ought to be one of the great powerhouses of theological learning in the life of the larger church. And yet, I mean, you ought to be the ones who are teachers. And yet you need someone to teach you. Again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. And so what is he criticizing them for? They've lost touch with God's word. And they've really begun to assume it. And this was a problem with Jewish culture in their day as well. Because it became less about what the Bible had to say, what the Torah had to say. It became more about what does the rabbi have to say? And this is just human nature because isn't this what manifests itself in the life in the Corinthian church? Well, I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas, who's Peter. Uh, rather than actually looking and seeing yourself, see, looking for yourselves into God's word. And it is a difficult document often to break into. And yet it's living and active. And so the thing that I do is when I don't understand, like, you know, if you don't understand Hebrews chapter 5 leading up to this point, uh, I read it, and I read it again, and I pray about it. Maybe I'll go grab a commentary, whatever it is. But typically what we do in our Bible reading is we kind of look over, and you're like, yeah, I don't understand that. Moving on. Ding. You know, you just kind of just float over it and go to the next thing, rather than actually doing the hard work of drilling down into it. Because this happens in your own interaction with people, doesn't it? Well, I read in the Bible one time that it said this, but I don't know what it means. What do you think it means? You think, well, I don't know what it means either. And then you call me or you email me, and that's fine. I'm, I'm very happy to do that. Uh, but often, if you've ever done that, you'll know what I say is that, well, I'm willing to give you some helps, but I want you to tell me what you think it means. I want you to drill down a little bit. I want you to really grapple with the text. This is what was happening at the time of the Reformation with Martin Luther when he read that the righteous shall live by faith, the justified shall live by faith. What did that mean? And so grappling and struggling with the scripture that eventually it's unlocked. I mean, one of the passages of scripture that I struggled mightily with uh, in, uh, when I was an early believer was Romans chapter 7. 
I really had no one. I mean, the language in it is very difficult to understand. That's the bit where it says the very thing that I want to do is the is the the thing I can't do, and the thing that I don't want to do is the thing that I. And I'm just thinking, you know, Paul, you could have taken some grammar classes and tried to sort of, you know, get it a little bit more clear. But I really had a hard time understanding what Paul was struggling with. Now it's probably the clearest part of the Bible to me overall. Uh, and that came through struggling with it and working through it and God working in my own life and opening my eyes to my own struggles and my own sin. And so what Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews, I keep saying Paul because the language is so similar and it might have been Paul. The author of Hebrews is saying is that you need someone to come and teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now here's where I don't want us to get this wrong. Christianity is not like Freemasonry, where a little bit more light is revealed to you as you go along. And you often see this kind of approach, in, and I don't want to be hypercritical, but I'm going to be, uh, in churches, if you walk in and they say, well, this is the 100-level class for new Christians, and this is the 200-level class for people who know a little bit more, and 300 and 400, and here's the graduate-level class for people who really uh, are, are super-duper Christians. Right? What does the Bible have to say about that? It says that once you're in Christ, you are in Christ. There's, there's no graduating levels. There's, there, there's none of that. But at the same time, uh, what Paul is saying, <clears throat> what the author of Hebrews is saying, see this is the danger of preaching from 1 Corinthians while we're doing this. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that there are so many believers though that feed on spiritual milk and never ever graduate to solid food. Now what does that mean? Now that doesn't mean that you come up to me and say, hey Andrew, can we talk about this Greek verb that I, I saw in, in Galatians that I'm having a hard time? That's not what I'm talking about because I forget who said it, but someone said it really well that, um, that when it, must be mine, um, Somebody uh, said it really well. I think it was Spurgeon who he, someone was asked about a great academic in England in the 19th century. And he said, the woman who sweeps my floor has more knowledge of God than he does. Because for this guy, it was just all upstairs. He knew a whole lot about God, but he didn't know the living God. He was not in relationship with him. And the way that we do uh, move from milk to spiritual food, as he says here, is that we begin to grapple and live within the oracles of God, which is God's word. And so if you're wondering, I don't know why I'm not growing spiritually, it's probably because you're not spending any time in the word. Right? Now, it doesn't mean that, that God is far away and that he's saying, well, if you don't spend time in the word, I'm not going to get anywhere near you. But it's impossible to get to know somebody unless you spend time with them. I mean, what if you were to write a love letter to um, someone that you love uh, and, and you really pour your heart out on the pages and then you ask them, well, what did you, what did you think of it? And they say, well, I just, 
I don't know, I haven't opened it yet. It's, 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 it's still on the kitchen table. What would your response to that be? Be a jerk. <laughs> right? Now, God isn't looking at you and saying, you jerk, but what, what you're seeing is that, is that you have put part of who you are on that paper. You've taken the time to do it, and that by reading it, the person that you love is going to understand you in a better way. They're going to have more of an idea of who you are. And in the same way, the author of Hebrews is saying that if you want to get from milk to solid food, that's where that comes from. Now, circling back around to something I said earlier about a consumerist mentality, there's no doubt that the local church encourages this. I mean, we really do try to keep you on spiritual milk and never see you get to any kind of maturity. Now that happens in two ways, and it's not just in certain traditions, it just manifests itself and it's in different ways. So if you were part of the interview last week with William Stokes, William was talking about how there was an emphasis at his theological college on, for lack of a better word, priestcraft, like priestly things that, that the ministers would do. Meaning if you want to get closer to God and that way of thinking, you need the priest, don't you? Otherwise, how are you going to get communion? How are you going to get absolved from your sins? Those types of things. But people on the other side do it too. I mean, if, if you're the pastor of a large evangelical church and everyone thinks that you're the bee's knees and you're the only one who has the right way of speaking about God's word then you're going to look to that individual to spoon feed you. But again, you end up right back where the Corinthian church was, which is you can say really well what your pastor is saying, but can you say what God is saying? And so often in the Christian life where God has set forth this buffet of riches, we're either eating junk food or regurgitated food. We're, we're almost wholly dependent. I mean, this is why Christian bookstores exist. Now, I've read lots of really great and wonderful books, uh, but I've noticed uh, the other day I was talking to a parishioner about getting a book on tape and because uh, I have a, a ride ahead of me at the end of the month, and he was telling me all these Christian books, and, and I said, I, I've never even heard of these books. And he said, oh, well, they're, you know, New York Times bestsellers and, you know, I've, I've seen them on audible.com and you can get them. And I'm like, I, I don't know. And he said, well, what are you reading right now? And I said, uh, Andrew Bonar's biography on Robert Murray McShane, which was published in the 1800s. And he's like, well, that's not on tape, right? That, that's not going to. That's it. And I've pretty much given up, uh, by and large, uh, on, on many new books uh, that come out, one, because if it's biblical, somebody has said it before. And someone probably has said it in a better way. That's why I really love what Tim Keller said about why he didn't write a book until, was it 50 or 60? I don't remember if it was 50 or 60, but basically he said, I'm not going to write a book until I turn 50 or 60 because I have nothing to say until then. And of course there are people that preach in a certain way that, that makes it easier for us to hear. Uh, there are people that write in a certain way that makes it easier for us to hear. And I've already admitted that I look at commentaries when it comes to tricky Bible passages and things like that. But that is no substitute for us being able to figure out how to, how to handle the word as well. And I also see this among some preachers too where their sermons are simply dominated by illustrations 
that don't shed light on what the passage is saying. And so that's the danger with illustrations. So basically they found these really great illustrations and they're going to figure out how to use them. They'll make whatever text they've got fit. And of course what happens is we all leave them like, man, that's a great illustration. I have no idea what the person was trying to say or, or what Bible passage they were preaching on, but that was really, really good. But a great illustration is something that sheds light on what the Bible is actually saying. So when you can say, I mean, hopefully, well, Andrew's daughters beat one another up on the dance floor, and that's just proof that children fight all the time, and they haven't grown into the maturity of love that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. And hopefully they will one day. And it really is a remarkable thing, and this is such a sensitive area for our lives as Christians, because so many of us have probably grown up in the life of the church and one, don't want to admit that we're unskilled in engaging with God's word uh, and so we're not going to say anything about it. But we don't, we don't feel comfortable. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad but you know, people who have grown up in the life of the church and are absolutely mortified that they'll be asked to say the grace at a, at a meal. Now, it's one thing if you're shy. Uh, I get that. Uh, but I long for people to come to me and to say, look, I've been a believer for 30 years. I love the Lord. I know the Lord loves me. But I don't know how to engage in God's word. And basically all I've been feeding on my whole life is spiritual milk. And I feel like I'm under conviction and I need to graduate, although that's not the right word. Uh, I need to move on uh, to milk. I mean to solid food. And what does the solid food look like? The solid food actually is counterintuitive. And Paul talks about this in Romans when he says that before I became a believer in Jesus, I thought I was a great guy. I was, you know, elsewhere he talks about his resume, circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I had all this going for me and I had so much confidence in the faith side of my life and then I became a believer and what happened? I realized I got issues. Uh, I'm, I'm a complete and total mess. And as Paul say, but as I get older, I get better and better. I, I become more upright morally. Uh, I, be, I start looking a whole lot more like Jesus. Is that what Paul says? No. Paul says that the more... The longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize my sinfulness and my need for a Savior. And so the solid food is actually getting in touch with your own brokenness and understanding who Jesus is and realizing that you've got to fly to the fountain. Jesus washed me lest I die. That's the progression of the Christian life. I'm going to tell the inappropriate story, which is really inappropriate. Lauren says you shouldn't tell that story, but I'm going to. Uh, Michael David, who was a Baptist pastor, uh, Uncle David took over a uh, suburban church in Washington, D.C., where there was a lot of white flight, and, uh, and by the time he retired, it was the largest African-American congregation in the Southern Baptist Convention. And there was one white dude there, and that was my Uncle David. And I mean, to see him on a Sunday morning, the man has no rhythm. I mean, he was just kind of, you know, it was, it was comical. And yet... 
he was a great pastor, a great teacher of God's word. And I would even go so far as to say that I, I grew up feeling like he was a holy man. I mean, when you were around him, you really felt like you were in the presence of something great. And a cousin who is in ministry now too, uh, and I were sitting down talking to him, trying to glean from him uh, some ministry uh, words of wisdom. And my cousin asked, Uncle David, as you grow older, do you find yourself becoming more and more like Jesus? And my cousin's a goofball. And uh, I mean, this is one of, this is the side of the family that y'all know. This is one of my, um, from the great grandmother's side where she had 14 kids, 54 grandkids, and 72 great grandchildren when she died. I mean, talk about a birthday card regimen she had. I mean, she was on it. It was amazing. But anyway, this is one of the 72 uh, with me. And we're sitting talking to Uncle David. And Uncle David's response to that question, do you find yourself growing more and more into the likeness of Christ? And he said, my, my propensity to sin has not diminished. Only my physical ability to act upon it. <laughs> I mean, what's he saying? I mean, what is he, he's saying that you can't say that I'm getting holier simply because I'm tired. Right, or that, that, I'm, that I'm, I'm unable uh, to actually rob the bank or whatever it might be. But in fact, what I've realized is every single day I wake up, like John Newton, I realize how great a sinner I am, but how great an even greater Savior that Jesus is. And how do we know about that? It's because we're engaging in God's Word and God's Spirit speaks to us through it. Right? This is not just some dead document. You're not reading. This is not the manual on the Christian life. Right? This is God speaking to us. And so I've said it a bunch of times. And if you ever want to hear God's voice, read the Bible out loud. And you'll hear it. You'll hear his voice. And even those parts that are tricky and hard for us to understand, uh, that we trust that God's Spirit is going to lead us into all truth and have us have a proper understanding of what God is saying. Now that's changed. I was listening to an interview with uh, Kenwin Swan, who's obviously Welsh, and she grew up, uh, she was born uh, in the 1930s and grew up in Wales, and she said that in Wales you would be walking along the roadside and people would just turn and look at you and ask, what do you know of the kingdom of God? I mean, they really were thinking about this kind of stuff. Now, what Kenwin would say is that so many of these people had head knowledge, but not heart knowledge. They had grown up in such a saturated Christian culture, especially on the heels of the great Welsh revival in the early 20th century. Uh, but, uh, but there was really a sense in which people were reverent. They really cared about this stuff. Uh, but it, it wasn't at all real to them. And in the same way, those are not the questions that typically we engage with one another about. So I don't think, the re he's writing to the Hebrews, so it's not just to the individual that he's saying, hey, you need to engage with the oracles of God, but you need to engage with one another in it. So when you do have a tricky bit, you call up a friend and say, hey, let's meet it over easy with our Bibles and talk about what the author of Hebrews is trying to say in Hebrews 5. Let's, let's thrash it out. Let's figure it out. Or let's have a lunch with Andrew 
or a cup of coffee and, and ask about uh, what this means. I mean, this is a dangerous thing that we're doing by walking through 1 Corinthians because it brings up a whole lot of sticky issues. And uh, I mean, even this morning, um, it's, it's not the message that I necessarily want to preach. But what are you going to do with it? There it is. And so even preachers are guilty of avoiding those passages where everybody's thinking, well, what does that mean? Or I'd actually like to hear something about that. Uh, and yet um, what we end up doing is just switching and giving a little bit of a spiritual milk sermon uh, that really uh, may be edifying uh, at some level, but certainly doesn't push you more into uh, God's word. And this solid food is for the mature and for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So I'll end on this. Spending time in God's word and growing in relationship with him allows you to actually see more clearly the way the world works. So like my uncle David, you're actually able to see yourself more clearly. Being a believer ought to make you more self-aware. And there are very few things in life that do this for you outside of Christianity. The only two things that I can really think of, well, three things, tragedy, marriage, and children. So before I got married, I thought I was awesome. And just after getting married, I felt like I wasn't awesome, but I started to get a whole lot better, and I thought, now I'm really awesome, and then I had kids, and I'm just like, forget it. Uh, just forget it. Uh, but Christianity does that for everybody. Uh, Christianity, uh, by the power of God's Spirit, uh, begins to make you more self-aware, but it also allows you to be more aware of what is going on in the world, and you're actually able to see a thing as it is. I mean, one of the things that we've almost completely lost in our culture is discernment. And yet that's really what we, I mean, how many of us would love to have someone that we can go to that has discernment? I'm thinking about changing careers, and I don't know what to do. I mean, who do we go to for that kind of stuff? I mean, it's becoming less and less uh, the case. Uh, but what the author of Hebrews is saying is that that's you. You're the one who can actually discern with yourself. You're the one who can actually discern with your friend, with your neighbor, with your family member, uh, and that that discernment actually helps you to see the world as it truly is. I'm just going to stop. Uh, questions, comments, concerns about Hebrews chapter 5, 11 through 16. Jane? Just really just a comment, and this is a, a quote that I heard at a women's retreat a long time ago talking about the importance of being in God's Word, and it really struck me, and it's by a man named Gurnall, and he says, if I get my phone to work, I know, well, it's not big. Could God find heart and time to pen and send this love letter to thee, and thou find no time to read and peruse it? The sick man, no time to look on his physician's bill. The condemned man, no time to look on his prince's letter of grace in which the pardon is signed. 
And that just really struck me. It's so easy to get so busy. Um, and I've heard somebody say busy is being under Satan's yoke. Mm. Getting so busy that we really don't have time to read the very words of life. And I really appreciate your Sunday school class. Man, can we uh, just do a whole series on busyness? Yeah. I mean, it's killing me. Don, do you want to talk about killing me? No, but I, w- I will say that I heard uh, something similar to that in uh, Alabama E's about a year ago. An older gentleman looked at me and said, if the creator of the universe uh, is wanting to get in touch with you any morning, every morning, why wouldn't you take the time to listen? Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. I think one Kathy. of the things that you said that is the most important that I, I feel like is most overlooked is not being so busy that you don't have any attention to God, but it is substituting everyone else's thoughts about right. God for his word of God. Right. When we, talk, when we only read Bibles, uh, uh, books about the Bible and we fail to actually study the Bible, we've missed the point. Yeah, and you see that in people's lives. I just want to make a comment about that. When I do interviews with other clergy, I can, within the first 15 minutes, figure out who they really like to read. Because they start to use little phrases and uh, say things that immediately my mind goes to, I know where you pick that up. And, um, and one of the things about the great, so for instance, John Wesley uh, and Whitfield and men like that uh, would speak in Scripture because they were so immersed in it that it was just part of their conversation. So they were able, when someone said, I'm so distracted, they could say, well, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Consider the lilies of the field. Do not worry about tomorrow. Um, and so I think that you know, if, if you're someone who's new, uh, whether you've been a believer 30 years or 30 minutes, um, it, it may just be taking a verse, like John 3.16 writing it down, and just thinking about it through the day, just praying over it. God, uh, what is this saying? Not what's it saying to me, but what is it saying? And, and how, um, how can it be implanted in my heart for my good, but above all for your great glory? Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.